Pushkin. Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill-building courses for you to choose from because the steps you choose to take today will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope, on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been a year since we started this show. And we started it because I wanted to talk to people who are trying to make technological progress. People who are struggling with big, interesting problems, who, who go to work every day and try to figure out how to do things that no one in the world knows how to do. And now, enough time has passed since we started the show that some of the people we've talked to have, in fact, figured some things out. They have solved some problems. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem? On today's show, we're following up with three people who we've spoken to over the past year. First, Keenan Weirobeck. He may have solved the key problem that has been preventing drone delivery from taking off in the United States. Then Catherine Sizov, who seems to have figured out how to get ripe bananas onto grocery store shelves at the right time. And finally, Glenn Kelman. He is the CEO of the real estate company Redfin. And since we talked to him last, he, like a lot of people in the real estate industry, has had something of a tough time. What I've been through just personally has sometimes felt like a spiritual death over the past six months. But he has come through it with some really illuminating insights. We'll hear those later in the show. First up is Keenan Weirobeck, co-founder and CTO of Zipline. 
Zipline is a drone delivery company. They operate in a bunch of countries around the world. They've done hundreds of thousands of flights in Rwanda, where their drones deliver medicines across the entire country. But when I talked with Keenan last year, he was up against this kind of combination technical slash regulatory problem that was making it hard for him and other drone delivery companies to expand in the United States. Here's what the problem was. In other countries, there are strict rules that require planes to have transponders, these devices that allow drones and planes to detect and avoid each other. But rules about transponders are more lax in the U.S. And as a result, commercial drone companies have to figure out how to detect and avoid planes that are flying without transponders. Today, drone delivery companies like Zipline in the U.S. solve for this in a kind of ridiculously low-tech and labor-intensive way. They actually pay people to sit on the ground and stare at the sky, watching for planes. This obviously is, is not going to scale. We're not going to have a, have a drone delivery business when you have to pay people to sit on the ground and stare at the sky. For drone delivery to be a real economically viable service in this country, someone needs to figure out how drones can automatically detect and avoid planes. When I talked to Keenan last year, that was Zipline's big problem. Now, after years of trial and error, he thinks they've solved it. Keenan told me the story of how they figured it out. So we went on a journey here. Um, we started, we actually started with radar because uh, radar was the thing that sort of the holy grail of you know, FAA, underst the regulators understand radar. Um, it has the benefit of being able to see through clouds and things like this. Okay, so why didn't radar work? The regulators want drones to be able to sense aircraft coming from any direction and avoid them. And okay. this is a big challenge. Okay. Uh, and so if you put enough radar on an aircraft to see in all directions, up, down, you know, left, right, front, back, uh, it weighs something like five times more than our drone does. Um, okay. It's a massive radar system. Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, it's basically, there's just no way to fly it. Okay. So it's too heavy. The simple exactly. answer is too heavy. Won't work. Okay. It's too heavy. It's too heavy. And so we went from there to cameras. It's like, okay, okay. can you just look? Now, cameras have some really interesting challenges. And I, I think the, the first challenge is easy to, if you've ever tried to take out your cell phone and like look for a plane in the sky, uh, you've seen the first challenge. You almost, it's almost impossible to see it on your phone, okay. right? And to our eyes, we can kind of figure out, oh, there's a plane there, but it's literally a couple pixels to a camera, even a very oh. high resolution camera. Uh -huh. And so being able to tell the difference between, you know, a smudge on the lens, a bird and a plane, very difficult uh, okay. to do that reliably. Okay. So yeah. radar won't work. Cameras won't work. What do you, what do you try? <laughs> so this, so this was sort of a back to the drawing board moment of like what on earth could work. So if you remember the early hearing aids that were these cones that you would stick in your ear and, and use to hear something. So I don't World personally I remember them, but I have seen photos. Yes. <laughs> you see photos. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the, so before radar was invented, the Brits in the, in the United States, we built these huge cones, like 20 foot size cones that, that humans would stick their ear onto the end of this 20 foot size <laughs> cone. And, and this, they point the cone at the horizon to try to hear aircraft coming uh, before you could see them. Wow. So when was that in use? World War One, and then okay. in early World War Two, until radar wow. uh, was invented, which wow. was mid-World War Two. Yeah. So just be a dude with his ear on a giant cone, and if he heard a plane, he'd say, whatever, everybody into the bunker, the plane's coming, exactly. ring the alarm. Everybody into the bunker, yeah. scramble the yeah. planes, intercept, yeah. this kind of yeah. thing. Okay. Yeah. 
And, you know, it kind of makes sense, right? Like as humans, we're pretty good. We're walking around, you hear a plane, you look up, you're like, oh, there's the plane, right? Yeah. Um, we don't see a plane first, we hear a plane first. Um, and uh, that, that was the inspiration. Uh, and it was like, okay, well, we've tried the other, the things that seem more obvious. Let's try this. And th this was one intern was working with me and it was basically saying, hey, let's, you know, the, the philosophy is, is fail fast, right? It's basically, let's try to understand the technical reasons why this is impossible as quickly as uh -huh. possible. Let's um, rule it out. And, yeah. So the number one reason to be skeptical is that you've ever been like, you know, on a bike or, you know, in a motorcycle or a car and, and you, you, it's quiet in the car, but on a motorcycle, you put your head, you're out the window and you hear all this noise. You can barely hear the person, you know, biking next to you. That's called aeroacoustic noise. It's basically the, the, the noise made by the rush of air over your, oh, yeah. well, over it's you. It's like yeah. when you roll down the window in the car when you're on the freeway. It's, the it's super version. loud. <laughs> it's super loud, right. And so these planes, the microphones are in the rushing wind created by the plane in the sky, by the drone in the sky. Exactly. So is there, basically the question was, with all that noise from that rushing wind, would we still hear those aircraft far enough yeah. away uh, to be able to avoid them? That was okay. the biggest thing that we were, we were worried about. Um, but we we... We found a way using a microphone array, so basically a, you know, a set of microphones on the aircraft to be able to literally listen for where aircraft are and use that to avoid them. So, so you're saying it works. You figured it out. Uh, tell me how it works. Yeah. So, so the final system across the, the wing, um, there's eight microphones and they're on, they're on, and they're on little, they're on little poles. They look like basically like a, you know, I don't know, a, a, the length of a straw, like a drinking straw okay. uh, coming out the front of the, of the micro of the wing. There's eight microphones. Uh, and now you need a bunch of microphones to do basically what your ears do, which is beam form, which is basically you figure out how the sound hits one microphone a little sooner than the other one. And it helps you understand, oh, the, micro the noise is coming from over there versus, you know, coming from your right side versus your left side. So that, that that's what it looks like on the aircraft. And then, okay, so this is the hardware piece. Yeah. Is there a sort of software layer? I, I've got the hardware piece in my mind. You're gathering this sound. Uh, I mean, I mean, I know everything sounds like an AI problem now, but this one really does sound like an AI problem, right? You're pattern matching because you want to say, it, does this sound like a plane? Let's test it against a billion other sounds. And I don't know, how, what's the software piece work like? Yeah, there, there's a big software piece. The software we, has been far and away the biggest effort here. There's a there's okay. a tiny team of hardware engineers and a big team of software engineers working on this. Um, so how does the software work? So the software has layers. Um, and the first layer is a layer called beamforming. And, and beamforming is this technique very similar to what our ears use to figure out, okay, where are the sound sources coming from right now? That's the first layer. Okay, that's cool. So now you yeah. know where the sound is coming from, but you don't know what it is yet. Exactly. So, and then the next layer is an AI layer uh, where we're, we've we've done uh, thousands of flights uh, with different aircraft, and different sound sources, and we've used that data to train an uh, AI model uh, to actually uh, figure out. Basically, uh, it reinforces where it's coming from, and to figure out, hey, this is probably an aircraft. This is probably not an aircraft. And and then the AI just says, yes, it's an aircraft. I've detected now. Avoid, 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 or what? What's the last yeah, so the, step? So there's two. There's two more layers here. So it's the okay. next layer uh, is a. It's called the tracking layer, and the tracking layer is. You kind of think of that. That layer is the layer that remembers over time, right? So this okay. takes the information from this AI layer, and over time says, "Oh, you think something's kind of over in that direction? I'm gonna I'm gonna keep track of that." And every every uh, you know every fraction of a second, it gets an update, and it kind of updates that track of sort of where it thinks that sound is coming from. Uh, and then the final layer takes those tracks of where. Uh, these, and these, and these tracks are, are, are estimates, right? You can kind of think of them as like, mm -hmm. Hey, I'm, there's, 
you know, there's an air, if there's an aircraft in that direction, kind of over there. And the next layer is the layer, the planning layer, the layer that takes that information and says, okay, if there's an aircraft over there. I better go over here <laughs> to stay I away from that steer aircraft. Away. I better go in the I other better... direction. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. So, so now you have solved this non-trivial technical problem. There is also a regulatory problem, right? You have to get approval to fly your commercial drones without people on the ground looking at the drone the whole way. The, reg the FAA has to say, yes, we believe that this works and you can fly your drones. Do you have that approval? Yes, but let me explain it because <laughs> as in all things with from a regulatory perspective, it's yes. it's subtle. So what's really yes, exciting asterisk? is we just got yeah okay. a yes asterisk. So yeah. th th basically, we're about to start this walk, crawl, run uh, sort of progression, um, okay. which is how you should start a new technology like this. So yeah. we just got approved to fly this uh, in operations in the United States. So th in the crawl, walk, run, the crawl phase, which we're about to start, which is basically this technology turned on. So doing the avoid the sensing and avoidance with but with still these visual observers standing on the ground, staring at the sky. Uh, and then later this year, we, we go through a process with the FAA to remove the visual observers and keep operating. And that's the holy grail moment that's coming soon. So, so the holy grail moment is flying a commercial drone flight in the United States without someone watching from the ground. Exactly. And when do you think that'll happen? If I'm being optimistic, it's about three months from now. If I'm being more realistic, it's three to six months from now. It seems like this has been the big underappreciated by the general public problem that has prevented commercial drone delivery from taking off, excuse my pun, uh, in this country. Uh, is that right? And like you think you've solved it and the FAA thinks you've probably solved it. Yes. I, this is, I'm, yes, it has been a long few years to get through this journey, but I, I am over the moon excited about this because this is, this, this is the big unlock. Great. Um, good to talk to you. Can we talk in a year? <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. 2024. Talk to you then. Excellent. One other piece of Zipline news that Keenan told me about, uh, the company is working on this new kind of drone. It's this wild two-part system where the drone itself hovers like 300 feet above the delivery site, and then it lowers down this little box on some kind of wire. The box goes all the way down to the ground, opens up, delivers the package, and goes back up into the drone. They hope to have that in operation by early 2024. So that'll be one more thing for me and Keenan to talk about next year. Still to come on today's very special episode of What's Your Problem? The banana ripening frontier. Also, how higher interest rates are profoundly changing not only the real estate business, but lots and lots of businesses. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. 
Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org wisefriend. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Next up, Catherine Sizov, founder and CEO of a company called Strella Biotech. Catherine and Strella, they developed these sensors that detect when apples and pears are getting ripe. Uh, they work not like in the grocery store or in your house, but in these giant storage rooms where apples and pears sit and ripen. Uh, the idea behind the product was to, you know, reduce waste, increase efficiency, that kind of thing. And uh, the sensors are based on this thing that happens in nature. There are lots of kinds of fruit where when they get ripe, they emit ethylene gas. And that gas is like a signal that causes nearby pieces of fruit to ripen more quickly. When Catherine and I talked last year, she was trying to solve ripening problems for other kinds of fruit besides apples and pears. When I followed up with her earlier this month, I asked her, is there some new kind of fruit that you've cracked since we last talked? Bananas, actually. Bananas? <laughs> yeah. It's a big one. <laughs> yeah, it is a big one. Um, tell me about bananas. What happened and when did it happen? Yeah, I guess my first question is, how do you like your bananas? Because this is a, a heated topic. I prefer them a little too ripe as opposed to a little bit unripe. Like if it's still kind of green, if it's still hard to peel, if when you peel it, it's hard to peel, and then you eat it and it's a little chalky, that's not, that's not my favorite banana. I'm one of those freaks that likes it a little bit underripe, actually. But I think you're in the majority. Huh. So what have you figured out about bananas? Like... What was the problem? And then what did you figure out? Like, wh what was the status quo? Whatever, a year ago, what was the banana problem? 
So the banana problem is that every time we go to the grocery store, the bananas tend to be a little bit on the green side. I don't know right. if you have this from personal experience, but they tend to actually edge towards green. And then sometimes it goes the other direction where they're way too ripe and no one wants to buy them. Right. Um, but basically what happens is that they're brought into North America totally underripe. So they haven't, they're not mature whatsoever and they're green when you peel them. It's very hard to peel them. Um, they ooze latex. So they're like, if you try to peel it, it's, it's kind of almost like bleeding latex. And then what happens is these bananas are put into what are called ripening rooms. Um, so basically, uh, bananas go into these rooms and then they're dosed with ethylene gas, uh, which is what makes them ripen. Um, and, and this every- is just to, just to restate what we talked about last time, like in the wild, Uh, A ripening piece of fruit, a ripening banana emits ethylene gas, and that is a signal to other surrounding bananas that they should also ripen, right? So the dosing with ethylene gas is just doing what happens in nature. That's exactly right. So they're put into what's called a ripening room, uh, and they're dosed with ethylene gas. And then comes the art of it, which is that every day, a ripener, that's a job, will go into that room and say, hey, are these bananas more green or less green than what I was expecting? And they just look at them visually, and they say, hmm, doesn't look quite yellow enough. And then they adjust the conditions of the ripening room based on that. So it's a super human, super subjective uh, way to do it. And we thought, you know what, Uh, this is probably the cause of a lot of inconsistencies. Um, Every single ripener has a different idea of what a stage seven banana looks like or stage four banana looks like. And so let's take the human out of this. Let's take the art out of it. We know about fruit physiology. Let's turn this into a science. So uh, what we did was we put our sensors inside these ripening rooms and we can tell how the bananas are reacting to their conditions and how they're ripening. And then we throw some machine learning on top of that and we say, hey, this banana is going to be underripe if you keep going the way that you're going. So we're basically going to the retailer and helping them ripen their bananas for the store shelf. Oh, huh. So how does how does that work? So a grocery store, can you name it? Are you working with some grocery store chain I would have heard of? Uh, a big one in Canada. <laughs> okay. Can you uh, can you say the name? I can't. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, like hundreds of stores across Canada or something? Yes. So so how do you go into the grocery store? So you go talk to a ripener uh, and they say, you know what? You're totally right. This is a huge problem for me and I have a million other things to do. And I work Oh, there. I wouldn't have expected that. I would have expected them to say, I'm a genius at ripening. Go away. That happens too sometimes. Okay. <laughs> But I think the ones that, you know, in general, when you're when you're good at your job and a new tool comes along, you're like, hell yeah, that's awesome. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So so I think most people are really interested. <laughs> uh, um, so, OK, so you go, you talk to the ripeners. Keep going. So we talk to the ripeners. They're like, I have a million things on my plate. Ripening bananas is one of them. I don't know if I'm doing a good job. Would love to, to see what's up. So then we put up we set up shop in a couple of ripening rooms. We work with the ripener to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, and train our model on it. And then we expand. And how long did it take you for your sensors to be better than a ripener? It's We're still going. So we're kind of... Well, let me ask you, are you better than a human ripener now? Well, it depends, right? So if... What we can do is we can basically give a tablet to a person off the street and you can go ripen a bunch of bananas and not do a terrible job at it. Uh, uh-huh. So that's pretty important because it usually takes three to five years to train a ripener. Uh, wow. In, yeah. In the art of uh, banana ripening. But okay. now we can 
now we can kind of negate all that. In terms of like the OGs of banana ripening, I don't necessarily <laughs> think so, but uh, with a little bit more time, then uh, I think we'll get there. <laughs> so basically you can make anybody as good as the sort of average five years of training banana ripener. That's right. Now. Yep. Yeah. How long did it take you to figure to do that? Oh my God. Well, I mean, I have, I didn't talk to you too long ago, but to me, it feels like basically an eternity. It was a year. <laughs> it was a long year for you. I guess you did a lot. It was a very long year. <laughs> when do you think you'll be doing it in the U.S.? When do you think some U.S. grocery store will be buying your service? Um, we're in trials with uh, several grocery stores and distributors now. Okay. In the U.S.? Yes. Anybody you can name? No. <laughs> okay. Automating the task of figuring out how to ripen bananas is not some world-changing technology. But you can zoom out a little bit here. Creating machines to automate one task or another has been at the very core of technological progress for hundreds of years. In the long run, little automations like this are like the fundamental efficiency game. Getting more and more efficient at lots and lots of little things that is how, over the long run, we have raised living standards for most of the people on Earth. In a minute, we'll talk tech and real estate and giant macroeconomic fluctuations with Glenn Kelman, the CEO of Redfin. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org wisefriend. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope 
on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. About a decade ago, this new kind of thing popped up in the real estate world. It was called iBuying. If you wanted to sell your house, you could go onto a few sites on the internet, enter some information about your house, and a big company like, say, Zillow would actually buy your house for cash. Then they would fix it up a little, turn around, and try and sell it for a profit. Zillow famously lost a ton of money on this business, and they got out in late 2021. Another big iBuyer was Redfin. Redfin is a big brokerage, operates all around the country. And when I talked to Glenn Kelman, the company's CEO last year, Redfin was still in the iBuying business. But Glenn knew that if housing prices started falling, it would be tough to stay in that business. And he told me so in very dramatic terms. I brought this up with him when I talked to him again earlier this year. So look, the last time we talked was in the first half of last year. And we talked about iBuying. And you said that iBuying would be good on the way up. And on the way down, you said, in your words, it would be a roller coaster ride to hell. <laughs> Did so, I say that? <laughs> Remarkable prescience. Remarkable prescience. So tell me what happened with Redfin's iBuying business since the last time we talked in the first half of last year. Actually, we closed the business and we did that for two reasons. One is very intuitive, which is just that home prices fell dramatically between May and the end of 2022. And we were left holding the bag on hundreds of homes that we had to sell by hook or by crook. But the other factor is just the increasing cost of capital. So you're basically fronting the money to people who own a home so that they can move on. And when capital was nearly free, we were able to front that money at very low cost. So the offers we were making to people were very competitive. The, the idea being that that very low interest, that almost free money you were able to borrow was core to that iBuying business. It is because you're giving someone $500,000 for the three or four months that it takes you to rehabilitate the house, put it back on the market and get someone else to move in. It's a wildly capital-intensive business. It's a wildly capital-intensive business. To actually be the principal in a transaction where you're the source of the money yourself, that was something that was new. We saw that with WeWork. We saw it with iBuy. We saw it with all the used car marketplaces. And so, so that was all driven by this ultra-low interest rate environment that drove so much of the tech boom, right? Correct. And so we felt that even if housing prices stabilized again, where we could have a reasonable expectation that we could buy a house for $500,000 and sell it for $530,000, what had really changed in a permanent way is we had gone back to a world where capital would be expensive and the cost of fronting that money would be so high that we would have to offer much less for the house 
to offset the borrowing cost. And that has been the way most businesses operated for most of time, that if you're fronting money and taking risk, you're going to charge the consumer a hefty premium for that. And that suddenly was an offer that I wouldn't take if I myself were the consumer. And so if you're selling a product you don't believe is good for your customer, you got to stop selling it. I want to talk sort of beyond housing. Like you were the one who told me a long time ago that iBuying existed in part because companies like Redfin had suddenly had access to just an incredible kind of unlimited amount of really cheap capital. And that was one of those things that when you told me that, it helped me understand the whole economic era we were living through. It really did. And I thought about it a lot. And now you're telling me that that era is over. And, uh, you know, obviously the world is telling me that as well. And so I'm curious what you think it means, not just for housing, but for the broader economy, for, you know, technology companies, for innovation, for the economy more generally. What's it mean? Well, what I've been through just personally has sometimes felt like a spiritual death over the past six months, because if you pride yourself in part on your creativity, as many people in technology do, your basic attitude toward almost every idea is yes. And even if that idea takes 10 or 20 years to pay off, if the cost of capital is nearly free, a dollar 20 years from now is almost worth the same as a dollar today. Uh, So you might as well make the investment. And so I've had to shift my own approach to running Redfin from one that's very entrepreneurial, I hope that's always still part of Redfin, to something that's a more beady-eyed allocation of capital, where people come up with 100 ideas, all of them are very exciting, but if it were your own money, you'd mostly say no. And even though I always prided myself on spending Redfin's money as if it were my own, there was such a premium on growth that you took more risk. And sometimes I took the risk because I wanted to do it. And at other times, I took the risk because I felt like I had to. It was like 1 a.m. at a casino table. You've got a lot of chips. You think maybe I should just stand up and walk away. And just everyone in the room is yelling at you to keep pushing the money out to the middle of the table. Uh, That wasn't just with iBuying. It was a whole bunch of different initiatives. And so That can be a pretty stressful way to live, but it's also creative and exciting and exhilarating. And now I just think this is a good way to live too. I love my job more than ever, even though we've been through hell over the past 12 months. But it's more important for me to say no than to say yes. And that isn't always creative but it's sober and responsible. It's about time. I'm 52 years old, Jacob. It's time to grow up. Yeah. So if the metaphor of the teens when money was free was, you know, being at the being at the table at the casino at midnight, the pile full of chips and everybody's yelling at you to go all in, keep keep betting. What's the metaphor now? You're in your hotel room, only you have the code to the safe. Nobody uses that safe. But now your balance sheet, that safe, really matters. Like, how did you do in the end on iBuying? Well, we can't call it a win. <laughs> it wasn't a profitable business. 
but we didn't get our fanny handed to us either. You own any houses? Uh, we've got like a few houses to sell, but not many. And obviously there's always a sting in the tail. So the last house you sell is the ugliest one. <laughs> uh, so, you know, never count yourself lucky until you're dead, I think is some saying of the ancient Romans. Um, we'll see how we do on that last property, but um, we think we've mostly gotten out uh, alive. The Wisdom of Glenn Kelman, CEO of Redfin. To everyone who has listened to this show over the past year, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, if you want to help us grow into our second year of What's Your Problem? Uh, as I see it, you have three options. Option one, recommend the show to a friend. Option two, leave us a nice review on your podcast app. Or option three, suggest a guest for the coming year by emailing us at problem at pushkin.fm or uh, by letting me know on Twitter. I'm at Jacob Goldstein. By the way, options one through three are not mutually exclusive. Have at it. Today's show was produced by Edith Russelo, edited by Sarah Nix, and engineered by Amanda K. Wong. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and we'll be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem? If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope, on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.